1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is the author of Friends of Israel, the Backlash Against Palestine Solidarity, published by Verso Hill a Friends of Israel provides a forensically researched account of the activities of Israel's advocates in Britain, the book traces the history and changing fortunes of key actors within the British Zionist movement in the context of Israeli government's contemporary efforts to repress a rising tide of solidarity with Palestinians expressed through the boycott disinvestment and sanction BDS movement. offering a an important and politically relevant account of pro-Israel's actors strategies, tactics, and varying levels of success in key arenas of society, the book draws parallels with similar anti-boycott campaigns around the world. By demystifying the actors involved in the Zionist movement, the book provides an anti-racist analysis of a pro-Israel lobby, which robustly rebuffs anti-Semitic conspiracies. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, he He'll. Welcome.
0: Thanks very much.
1: Can you tell us something about yourself and the origins of the book?
0: Yeah, of course. Um, I'm a Londoner. I grew up here, still based here. Um, I, I say that because a lot of people ask me when I when they hear that I'm researching this topic. Oh, are you Israeli? Are you Palestinian? Or are you Muslim? Or are you Jewish? And I'm, I'm none of those things. But I am a sort of British person, and obviously, as I'm sure we'll talk about. British complicity in the situation in Israel Palestine is so deep that that you know ought to be in itself enough to mm. explain my interest. Um, I studied for a masters at SOAS and the University of London, um, and that's when I really got interested, I suppose, and exposed to Palestinian politics. And then I visited the West Bank twice in um, 2010, and I suppose. Seeing the situation in Palestine with my own eyes kind of was a lesson in how ignorant I had been. Really, previously I thought I was very educated and well informed, um, but you know the the kind of reality on the ground made me was a, was a, was a much bigger education than any books I had read. I came at the I came at the situation initially as an activist, as a solidarity activist. You know, aware of or having learned more about British complicity and about the Palestinian um, situation and liberation struggle. Um, I actually, like, I don't I don't mention this very often because I don't really want to make it about me, but I, when I was doing solidarity activism in the West Bank in 2010 in a village called Nabi Saleh, I got shot in the leg with a tea gas canister by the Israeli army. Um, and obviously, Palestinians, every every Palestinian has about... You know, five or ten stories like this, and and so I I don't want to over, overemphasize the the significance of that. But for me personally, it was quite a traumatic experience. And after that, I was keen to engage in the situation more from an intellectual and scholarly um, position, I suppose. And so I had the opportunity to undertake doctoral research looking at the Israel lobby, and that's what the book grew out of. Although my thinking has developed a lot since the time I did my PhD and it's been updated a lot since I finished um, to the book that just came out in April with Verso.
1: For the listeners, in case they don't know, SOAS is the School of Oriental and African Studies, which was formerly part of the University of London and now it's its own institution. And we, we are both alumni of SOAS, just to mention that. Now, this book is about Friends of Israel. In other words, about organizations, individuals or institutions that in various ways support Israel and fight against any Palestinian claim, mostly in Britain. I was wondering, can you give us a sense of your argument, contentions and goals?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I suppose my key contentions, my key arguments are that, you know, the Zionist movement certainly exists and has deep roots in Britain, dating back to before the Belfort Declaration of 1917. And then on top of that, that it deserves to be studied and to be critically scrutinized um, due to its role in defending Israeli apartheid historically and today. Um, And I also argue that the Zionist movement is increasingly visible because it's been forced to mobilize in recent years due to resurgent Palestine solidarity movement. And that um, the repression of BDS is is the most conflictual and influential kind of contribution that it makes. Whereas at the top, if you try to look for the influence of Israel lobby sort of in Westminster, it's much harder to see because it's not always actually that influential. The relationship with many British politicians is more cooperative, you know. British MPs in Labour, Friends of Israel, and Conservative Friends of Israel, which are, I'm sure we'll talk about more later, are don't need to be influenced much, if that makes sense. Um, and then, um, you know, I also, on a more broader scale, say that the Israeli government um, is becoming increasingly reliant on civil society pro-Israel groups. And that's because the boycott, divestment, sanctions, um, BDS uh, initiatives emerge from civil society. And so Israel has adopted... Um, in response, a PR strategy, which is called New Public Diplomacy, and that essentially involves non-state actors in um, state propaganda. And that's not new, new unique, by the way, to Israel, but was a central part of um, South African apartheid propaganda as well and, and its response to the boycott, which targeted it. And then, you know, in terms of my goals in writing the book, I mean, I'm very transparent about the fact that um, by... Sort of subjecting British organisations which defend Israeli apartheid and uh, repress Palestine solidarity activism and BDS um, to, to critical scrutiny. I wanted to, I want to undermine their power and make a, if I can, make a small contribution to undermining settler colonialism in in Palestine. And I think that by increasing our understanding of what the Zionist movement is and isn't. Um, I wanted it to be the book to be a useful resource for the solidarity movement to lessen fear of speaking out and acting in, in solidarity with Palestinians. And and finally, I think by by pushing back against the silencing and the and the cultivated ignorance in which um you know real anti-Semitic conspiracy theories can grow and take hold, and simultaneously apologists for. Uh, Israeli apartheid go unchallenged. Um, I wanted to just create space for a, a bit of a healthier discussion than we've had in this country um, for a while, um, one which kind of counters sensationalist, misguided narratives and recenters universal anti-racist principles and Palestinian
1: liberation. You just mentioned the question on conspiracy theories about antisemitism. So let's tackle from the very beginning antisemitism. Criticism against Israel does not equate with anti-Semitism, and that's clear. At the same time, we should not underestimate the fact that anti-Semitism is real, and in fact, it's even growing. As you write in the book, the Israel lobby is not the Jewish lobby.
0: Yeah, precisely, and it is very important to make this clear when we're having discussions around the Israel lobby or the Zionist movement. So I don't use the phrase Jewish lobby at all in the book except to say that the concept of a Jewish lobby is primarily an anti-Semitic myth uh, and it has a very um, ignominious history and there is, as you said, a real contemporary circulation of narratives suggesting that Jewish people have quote-unquote control of the media, uh, of the banking industry or exert this nefarious influence of controlling you know, governments, um, and that rests in part on um, on a false idea that Jewish communities are monolithic and homogenous, as well as you know, exceedingly powerful. And uh, of course, the reality is that, like any minority community, there are communal communal bodies um, that seek to represent Jewish communities. So, the the most important one in Britain is called the Board of Deputies. I think it was founded in 18- eighteen. 60, and it's a sort of democratic representative Jewish political organization and, and bodies like the board um you know they perform a lot of positive work for the Jewish community which we should support um but they also sometimes so certainly the board and other some other Jewish community organizations um, openly describe how they lobby for Israel and they present that as a sort of intrinsic part of their work for the Jewish community and that is more problematic and it's very controversial within Jewish communities itself. Um, so so like any community there's a lot of division, a lot of internal disagreement and it's also important to just take a historical view of this. So the Jewish community support for Zionism has never been complete and it's always been historically contingent. So the board for example was um, historically anti-Zionist and it's only in the 1930s and 19 19- 40s, when Jewish communities are coming under increasing persecution in Europe, culminating in the Holocaust, that Jewish communities quite understandably start to seek other alternatives and start to feel when maybe we do need a Jewish state and and support for Zionism grows. Um, But it's it's always been an issue of conflict. And in 2007, you see um, a group called International Jewish, no, International Jewish, Independent Jewish Voices, sorry, break away from the board because of its sort of pro-Israel stance. And more recently in Britain, at least, you've got um, uh, younger Jewish groups um, such as Nammod and Judas who are asserting a strong Jewish identity, but one that is very separate from uh, pro-Israel, like from Israeli apartheid. Um, so yes, just to underline the point, I suppose, um, support for Israel, support for Zionist project has always mapped onto political and not ethno-religious constituencies and a good example of that is the very significant role of christian zionism so in the uk we've got groups like uh, christian friends of israel christians united for israel which is a spin off of the the us evangelical group and uh, bodies like we believe in israel who are mostly the, the foot soldiers the majority of their kind of grassroots activists identify as christians not as jewish so it's fundamental to separate zionism and
1: judaism you mentioned christian zionism which is a topic i worked on and i'm also very much aware of the fact that uh, uh, the famous historian ilan papa actually is going to publish a soon a book dealing with uh, the relationship between christian zionism and, and israel so that will be very interesting to see how also your narrative connects with that one now for the reader that may not be familiar with the topic the book is full of names of organizations and institutions So I was wondering if you could delve into some of those and also provide the definition of the BDS, which you already mentioned, and the IHRA definition of antisemitism, which is playing a major role, not just in your book, but in debates about the definition of antisemitism.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, So that's sort of a three-part question, isn't it? Um, I guess with regard to the um, the first part, I suppose the most... Fundamental of the key organs of the Zionist movement uh, are worth describing. So, the World Zionist Organization is founded by uh, Theodore Herzl, one of the uh, primary ideologues of the Zionist movement, and others at the dawn of the 20th century. Um, and it has affiliates around the world. So, the Zionist Organization of America is one, and here in Britain, the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. Um, And and that was funded, incidentally, after Herzl visited Britain and found that there wasn't much support for Zionism in the Jewish community or elsewhere. And so it was founded to kind of change that situation. Now, out of the World Zionist Organization, three other bodies grow, and they're the so-called national institutions, which help to create the state of Israel in time. And they each have their own function. So first is the Jewish National Fund, established in... 1901 and that focuses on essentially the colonization of Palestinian land and in the UK today we have JNF UK which uh focuses like its parent body on raising funds on 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 to, and supporting the judaization efforts in an ethnic cleansing of, of bedouin eff- um in the uh nakab or the negev desert um and then secondly there's the uh foundation fund karen hayasad She's established in 1920. Uh, its British affiliate is originally known as the United Palestine Appeal, and it's today um, known as the United Jewish Israel Appeal. And that's primarily a fundraising body to uh, initially to, for state building and today for you know again supporting um, supporting Israel development projects. And then finally, the Jewish Agency is established in 1929, and that's a body which focuses on encouraging Aliyah or Jewish emigration to Israel. And the JNF UK is the British affiliate, which does the same thing here today. And importantly, those last two bodies are founded during the thirty near thirty year period in which Britain rules Palestine under the mandate. So the development of the Zionist movement is very much intertwined with British imperialism and British imperial history. So, and today we have a host of other pro-Israel bodies um, supplementing those those four that I mentioned, but they remain the kind of backbone of the Zionist movement today. Um, then with regard to the second part of your question, so you asked me to sort of offer a definition of of BDS. Um, well, boycotts has a long history in Palestinian resistance, but the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment and the Sanctions, emerges in 2005 when Palestinian civil society issues a call for BDS. And that's in the wake of the collapse of the Oslo peace process, the sham, Oslo peace process and the brutal repression of the Second Intifada. The call looks to civil society on the basis that governments have failed to deliver um, justice for Palestinians and it's inspired directly by the international boycott which helped to isolate apartheid South Africa and it seeks to um, put pressure on Israel to comply with international law. So it targets not only the Israeli state but also companies and other institutions that are complicit in Israeli apartheid and its dimensions are not only econ- economic but also academic and cultural and it has sort of three key demands each corresponding to one um, element of the Palestinian people so it calls for firstly an end to the illegal siege of Gaza and the occupation of the West Bank and the settlement project secondly for an end to the sort of second class status of, of Palestinian citizens mm-hmm. living in Israel And thirdly, for Israel to respect the right of return of Palestinian refugees who are, you know, the biggest refugee population in the world today. So so the BDS movement is is issued in 2005 and it starts small, but by around 2010 it starts to be taken more seriously by the Israeli government. And by 2014-15 it's winning major victories such as companies like Veolia and G4S, you know, pulling out of Israel. And Israeli uh, senior politicians are calling it an existential And and we'll talk more about this, but the repression has therefore uh, got a lot more intense in the last um, five to eight years. Um, And and the third part of your question was about uh, the IHRA, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, I think the first thing to say, as we've already touched on, is that, you know, real anti-Semitism is on the rise in, in the world today. And we shouldn't be insensitive to that or complacent about that. Um, at the same time, to understand the IHRA, we need to understand the concept of um, quote-unquote new anti-Semitism. And I really recommend uh, Brian Clug's writing on this, um, which has formed my thinking a lot. And he writes that, you know, the, the long-standing understanding of what anti-Semitism is, which is hostility to Jews as Jews, is um, essentially changed by by new, uh, new anti-Semitism, which positions Israel the state of Israel as uh, the new victim of anti-Semitism and as representative of Jewish people as the collective Jew. And so new anti-Semitism is said to come from a, a red-green alliance, um, the left and and Muslim communities. And in effect, what it is, is a rebranding of anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism. Um, and now the basic concept is articulated initially in 2005 in a a working definition um, of uh, what's now known as a fundamental rights agency but at the time was called the European Union monitoring center and it gained some traction but it isn't formally adopted by the EU Um, and however later it resurfaces as the IHRA and in this incarnation it steadily um, gained traction though not without a lot of controversy um and the controversy lies, especially in the uh, examples of potential anti-Semitism it gives, in particular, the idea that calling Israel, quote unquote, a racist endeavor is potentially an example of anti-Semitism. And of course, the issue is that Zionism is a form of ethno-nationalism and Israel is founded on ethnic exclusion, on, on Akba, the expulsion of 750,000 Palestinians. So I think for me, driving home the perversity of um, or calling, uh, calling, naming Israel's uh, racial oppression of Palestinians itself a form of racism is seen very clearly in Britain when the Parliamentary Labour Party was pushing for this to be adopted by the Labour Party in July 2018, while at the same time, Israel was passing the nation state law, which is the patently legis- racist piece of legislation which says that Israel is a state the Jewish people, and the Jewish people alone, and and just further codifying Palestinian citizens' second class status. So the IHRA is in some, you know, as many Jewish and Palestinian scholars have written, a way of silencing Palestinians from naming their racial oppression. It's also very harmful to Jews because it uses them as a human shield to um, protect Israeli apartheid. And, and that's a dangerous blurring of um, what racism is. And it, it creates this zero-sum game where one can't be both opposed to anti-Semitism and Israeli apartheid, which is a real tragedy, I think, for the hopes of building universal anti-racist
1: struggle. I want to ask something about uh, your methodological approach. I I think that one of the most interesting discussions, at least from an academic perspective, it's uh, in the introduction. And so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about your approach and also the sources that you have used for your book?
0: So the book is sort of grounded in <clears throat> power structure research, which is a specific approach to um, to studying up. So uh, studying powerful rather than weak actors. Um, and it's, um, you know, p- p- key players in the field have been people like uh, G.W. Domhoff and C. Wright Mills. Um, and it, power structure research starts with organizations as the key to power and it seeks to map the interconnections between them in order to demystify um a given power landscape and so i actually don't have loads of sort of network maps in the book but i um there are one or two um, secondarily i use kind of techniques from investigative sociology and so the work of people like jack douglas and joan cassell is interesting and I, to quote joan cassell she says you know In settings where you're likely to find a big discrepancy between front stage and backstage activities in other words you know public narratives and private realities then investigative sociology is um is really essential and so i would argue it's essential when we're studying lobbying pr new public diplomacy um so one of the investigative techniques i use quite a lot was um foi's freedom of information requests and you know, I think that like journalists make use of this a lot, but scholars don't. And I would like to see it happen more because I think if we really want to know how power is operating behind closed doors, it's a really powerful tool. Uh, so, for example, I think Chapter Five is is largely based on documents I obtained through FOIs, um, and they tell a very different story to the story that we heard about the episode uh, that it that it studies in the press. And I corroborated that with with interviews. Um, The interviews I conducted were with both pro-Palestine activists and pro-Israel activists. Many of the latter group sort of stonewalled me, didn't get back or said explicitly, you know, you're biased, you're a delegitimizer, I don't want to talk to you. But some did. uh, And it's very interesting sitting down with them. Uh, There's some archival research in the book, so some historical parallels to the Arab League boycott are drawn. And that was um, largely based on documents at the Board of Deputies archives at the London Metropolitan Archives. Uh, and then there's a huge amount of gray literature as well. So I drew on um, you know, reports produced by pro-Israel groups, their email lists, um, data held in the, uh, by the charity commission as well to kind of get a sense of the size and the incomes of these different organizations. And finally, like I suppose I did some sort of uh, deep internet research as well. So in the media chapter, I mentioned, for example, a, a, a body called the Institute for Middle Eastern Democracy And I used the Internet Archive to go back to see how its website had evolved in terms of how it presented itself. And it was really interesting because it started off as as an explicitly pro-Israel organization. And then over time, it starts to present itself more neutrally and to have um, other articles about other, you know, other countries in the Middle East. And um, that kind of coincides with when it's seeking to present its spokespeople on the news and does succeed in doing so as sort of neutral commentators when later um, the BBC acknowledges these are pro-Israel activists. So I think that's um, probably a, a summary of the um, yeah key kind of methods I
1: used. That was great. So we tackled definitions, we tackled methodology and sources. And now I want to ask about the Israel lobby, particularly in the context of a comparison with South Africa in the era of apartheid and British mobilisation in supporting Israel's civil society. Can you speak about this uh, relationship, this connection?
0: Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the South Africa parallel, I think is really interesting and important. I mean, obviously people will have heard uh, the apartheid framework as defined in international law being applied to Israel uh, by human rights groups such as Amnesty and Human Rights, which Um, having long been applied by you know Palestinian and Israeli human rights actors Um, but I argue that there's also a real parallel in the way that um, South Africa then and Israel today fight um, boycott movements targeting their targeting those states because of their racially uh, discriminatory policies and so um, you know there's very repressive activities overseas. Um, South Africa, for example, actually bombed the African National Congress's London headquarters. Um, And, you know, in both the case of Israel and South Africa, the British government uh, consistently shows essentially a colonial solidarity, and it seeks to sort of repress local authority activism, solidarity activism in support of the um, Black or the Palestinian liberation struggles. In terms of um, a bit more detail, uh, perhaps on, on, on South Africa's propaganda campaign or anti-boycott campaign, so two men called Connie Mulder and Ashel Rudy from the Department of Information, which is South Africa's like propaganda ministry, they mastermind a campaign um, to respond to the boycott, which is seeking to isolate South Africa over several decades. Because, um, you know, like Israel, they see um, the country's image and it's legitimacy crisis and the boycott movement as a as an issue of national security fundamentally and so apartheid south africa engages in a wide range of strategies and tactics to promote apartheid and to undermine the boycott and that ranges from you know sponsoring sporting events producing tv shows taking mps on all expenses paid trips to the country and um they um they also hired um professional pr firms and they cooperated with um Pro apartheid South African businessmen. Um, most interestingly, though, I think they tapped into a network of NGOs, um, often covertly funding them. Um, and they even manufactured civil society. So they set up um, a range of front groups in order to apply pressure in pursuit of their um, sort of diplomatic goals for multiple vantage points. Um, and so I think those manufactured civil society groups which kind of might appear to be grassroots, can be better termed Astros turf groups. Um, and they're at least partially, uh, because they're at least partially created by, by states. Um, so some groups active in Britain included the International Freedom Foundation and the Club of Ten. And I recommend uh, Ron Nixon's book on this um, if, if people are interested. I'm sure we'll talk more later about how the Israeli government tactics um, parallel. But that's the South African case. And I think
1: there are some, some really
0: remarkable continuities and echoes.
1: Now, moving forward with the chapters throughout the book, you are discussing the global context in order to understand the British Zionist movement and the question of, uh, you call it, and I found it amazing, uh, well, ironically, uh, selling apartheid.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I stole that from uh, Ron Nixon's book. His book is called Selling Apartheid. So I use that in, a, uh, in regard to South Africa and I use that in the heading of the chapter title about Israel, because the parallels are so strong. Um, So Israel's, yeah, anti-BDS campaign uh, echoes South Africa's really remarkably, as I said. And the context is that Israel's image is in slow decline for decades. Um, And then in 2000, you know, the problems really start with the collapse of uh, the Sham Oslo peace process and the yeah, the brutal oppression of of Second Intifada, um, and so there's this perennial debate in Israel about why you know Hasbara, which literally means explanation, is, is essentially propaganda or PR. Why Hasbara is failing, um, and 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 it comes to be seen around this point in time as a as a national th- security threat, um, because ultimately Israel is reliant on its Western allies enabling it. Um, it's reliant on that military and domestic sorry diplomatic support um so the israeli government commissions research which shows that um israel is widely seen as aggressive and militaristic and, and and bipartisan support is very much slipping away so supporters of israel are generally older they're whiter they're more conservative and whereas younger people more liberal people people of color much more likely to be pro-palestinian and that uh, generational split is especially marked, and it includes, um, you know, Jewish communities. So younger Jewish communities turning away increasingly from support for Zionism. Um, and at this pe- at this period in time, the the two state solution is increasingly being pronounced, which had of course been the apparent consensus, is increasingly being pronounced, um, you know, dead or dying or on life support, and that creates space for acknowledgement that what exists currently between the river and sea is a one-state reality and it's an apartheid reality and opens a conversation up about different possible one-state uh, realities and which which would have in effect spell the end of the zionist project so and of course as i've already mentioned in 2005 you get the call for bds from palestinian society civil society so that same year um, israel's initial response to this situation is that its Ministry of Foreign Affairs launches something called Brand Israel, which is an official nation branding project, which seeks to, um, quote-unquote, broaden the conversation about Israel um, beyond the conflict. So it, th- it it seeks to emphasize things like um, women's rights, lgbtq plus rights so pinkwashing essentially and israels achievements in science and technology and to portray israel as you know the startup nation um and uh, in addition it sort of actively promotes israeli culture overseas so um it sponsors tours by artists musicians filmmakers etc etc you know on the condition that they sign this contract stating that they understand and their support, the support they're receiving from the Israeli government is based on them, their role helping Israel improve its image overseas. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, this doesn't work very well and they have to turn to more oppressive tactics, but that's the initial um, attempt to sort of sell Israeli apartheid.
1: Since you mentioned uh, tactics, can you speak broadly about uh, the various tactics employed by Israel and its allies in the fight against the BDS?
0: Well, as I said, the BDS movement, you know, appeals to civil society and it's it's, it's there in civil society that um, BDS movements, uh, BDS initiatives, sorry, emerge. Um, so in universities, in faith organizations, in trade unions, in cultural institutions. And so um, because of that, um, you know, Zionist think tanks like the Reut Institute, based in Tel Aviv, and uh Israeli ministers like Gilada Den acknowledge that Israel needs supporters in civil societies to civil society to be on the front line um, to 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 fight these battles and um, that you know the Israeli government can perhaps at most support discreetly from the background um so what you get starting in around 2010 is a is an increased attempt by the Israeli government to institutionalize cooperation with um Zionist movement, Zionist actors in civil society. Um, and I talk in the book about an initiative called the Global Coalition for Israel, which is a, a high-level meeting of both Israeli government ministers, parliamentarians from other governments, and pro-Israel groups. So it's kind of a public-private partnership. They're fond of calling it, and it's loose. Its aim is to sort of loosely coordinate, um, you know, the activities of pro-Israel groups within the government's overarching strategy, and to sort of keep them on on message to be more effective. Um, And it's also increasingly engaging in um, manufacturing civil society in much the same way that apartheid South Africa did. So in Britain, I mean, I talk in the book about the evidence showing that the Israeli embassy here in London has um, helped to set up around 40 kind of hyper-local Friends of Israel groups across Britain. And the idea of that is to give the impression of grassroots support, or I call them astroturf, really support for Israel um, in the fight against BDS. Um, At at the government level, in 2015, when it's clear that BDS is becoming a force to be reckoned with, um, the Israeli government gives the Ministry of Strategic Affairs a budget of around 100 million shekels, which is 20 million pounds, to fight BDS. and, And that rises within a couple of years to 50 million pounds. And it uses a lot more repressive um, and darker sort of tactics, including surveillance, um intelligence gathering, blacklisting of, of BDS activists, buying anti-BDS coverage in, in newspapers. And according to you know, some analysts, although it's hard to prove these things, you know, so-called black ops, including harassment, defamation campaigns, cyber attacks, and things like that, infringements of, of privacy. And uh, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs staff are, you know, it's a highly secretive uh, department. It's it's staffed predominantly by former intelligence officials. And Gilad Adan, who was the Minister of Strategic Affairs for five years, he seeks in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, to exempt his ministry's activities from freedom of information legislation, explicitly on the grounds that, um, quote, most of the ministry's actions are not of the ministry, but through bodies around the world that do not want to expose their connection to the state, end quote. So, you know, the connections that he's alluding to are um, include covert funding of some pro-Israel um, civil society organizations by the government um, through a body called Concert, which is originally set up as uh, Kelesh Shlomo. Solomon's Sling, but renamed Concert soon after. And it allows essentially allows the government of Israel to provide funding indirectly to pro-Israel groups. And that's especially important in the U.S. due to certain legislation. So, for example, we know it's given around um, one million U.S. dollars to Christians United for Israel and the same amount to Hasbara fellowships in uh, the U.S. And, And Concert today has actually outlived the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, which no longer exists. The remit for BDS has returned to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but uh, that ministry has pledged to fund concert till at least 2025. And so that principle of new public diplomacy, of using civil society actors in your PR campaigns, um, is clearly being applied by Israel, and it's very reminiscent of South Africa, not, not unique to Israel. And the other thing to mention is um, the turn to lawfare, but I think we'll probably talk about that later, so I'll leave it
1: there. Yes, we will talk about legal warfare later, which is another obviously important aspect. I want to shift the focus now and uh, just look at Britain, given that your book is about uh, Britain and friends of Israel in Britain. So can you trace the evolution of British Zionism Particularly in relation to the uh, Labour, Conservative, and possibly also the Liberal Democrat parties.
0: Yeah, I mean, I won't, I won't say much about the, Li- the Liberal Democrats, to be honest. They're not really a very significant force in British politics um, or in pro-Israel politics. But I can talk about LFI and, and CFI. Um, so historically speaking, I mean, the pre-history of Labour Friends of Israel is that. Um, you know, Labour is extremely pro-Zionist in its early days. Some of the key supporters of Zionism, like Sydney Webb and the party, are also um, say explicitly anti-Semitic things. Um, but um, organizations like Part Le Zion in um, the Labour Party um, cultivate ties between um, the the Labour in Britain and Labour kind of Labour movements in Israel. Uh, and it means that Labour is, is founded a long time, Labour Friends of Israel was founded a long time before its Conservative counterpart in 1957. So that's in the post-war period, obviously, but before decolonisation really has begun in earnest. And the immediate trigger is um, the Suez crisis, which is which really tests the Labour Party's sort of support for Israel. Um, some of the the early kind of key figures in it are Morris Orbach and Barnett Janna, who are both Labour MPs, and the latter is also the simultaneously the president of the Board of Deputies and the Zionist Federation. Um, and this is, str- is strongly supported by people like Harold Wilson, who had a personal friendship with uh, Golda Meir, one of Israel's earliest prime ministers. Um, and so, you know, the key point really is that Labour Zionism dominates in these early years when Israel is seen as a fundamentally as a, as a socialist state. Um, on the other on the other side of the kind of um, Westminster divide, Conservative Friends of Israel isn't founded until 1974, and that's really in the wake of Edward Heath imposing an arms embargo on Israel after the October War. Uh, it's founded by a man called Michael Fiddler, who's a former Conservative MP, um, whose politics are extremely right-wing. His own biographer compared to Enoch Powell, who was a, a British politician who infamously made a a speech called the Rivers of Blood speech which is expressing racist anti-immigration ideas and Fiddler the founder of CFI you know yeah shared shared Powell's politics and his main concern at home was um, enforcing immigration legislation so CFI speaks to the fact that by the mid to late 1970s um, Israel is taking a rightward turn so uh, Menachem Begin is elected in 1977. And it's becoming increasingly clear that Israel isn't a socialist state, but an aggressive, nationalistic and militaristic one, and uh, not a sort of, yeah, egalitarian left-wing haven. And so as Labour Zionism is beginning to collapse within Israel and leftists in Britain are becoming somewhat disenchanted, simultaneously the right in Britain is becoming more enthusiastic about Israel. Um, and and another factor in that is that, you know, Israel is embracing by the ni- late 1970s neoliberal economics in common with any other, um, you know, Western states. And so conservative Friends of Israel grows very rapidly. But it's, conser- it's sort of fortunes ebb and flow over the years, as do Labour Friends of Israel's. So in the late 1970s, you get LFI's general secretary. Michael Cohen, speculating that LFI may need Israeli embassy funding merely to survive. And then by the end of the 80s, it's really at an all-time low, the dawn of the 1990s. But that trend with the Labour Party is partially reversed by Tony Blair. One of his first acts when he becomes an MP is to uh, sign up to Labour Fears of Israel, which is quite against the grain at the time. Um, And actually, support for Israel kind of becomes part of the political identity of the new Labour modernising wing of the Labour Party. Um, Of course, um, more recently, it slides back again during the Corbyn era. So he snubs the uh, Balfour 100 uh, celebration that LFI wants to organise in 2017. And in fact, LFI doesn't even have a presence at Labour Party conference that year. Um, But now today, under Keir Starmer, again, once more, Labour Friends of Israel has very much kind of come in from the cold. Meanwhile, Conservative Friends of Israel, again, extremely well connected, perhaps, according to some analysts, the biggest lobby group in Westminster, with an estimated 80% of Conservative MPs as members, um, and including like strong ties to um, or, or four, four or five, I think, of the last Conservative Party treasurers have had strong ties to Conservative Friends of Israel. And, you know, the conservative leader will almost always make an appearance at uh, CFI's annual business lunch. And the intertwinements with kind of commercial interests are quite interesting. So uh, Elbit Systems, which is an Israeli arms company, um, uh, hired uh, a lobbying firm called um, the Westminster Connection to kind of um ensure it could sort of sell weapons in britain and the westminster connection is is the lobbying firm of stuart pollack who's a key figure in in cfi and um the financial times i think it was or possibly the sunday times you know did an undercover journalism scoop where they recorded um, elbit's chairman in britain talking about how the company piggybacked on the cfi's networks within Westminster. So that, uh, you know, the financial element there, the commercial element is interesting. But the other thing to say about both groups is that today in Parliament in Westminster, the legal status of both groups is such that there, there's a lot of opacity around their funding sources. And we rely on sort of just intermittent scandals to really find out what's going on. But we know that they certainly both have close ties to the Israeli embassy and, and, and kind of communicate across state private networks. And we know that both organize Uh, trips for parliamentarians, sometimes through groups like uh, the Israel Allies Foundation, which is a body which has received money directly
1: um, from the Israeli government. Now, as you mentioned, today, the Labour and Conservative Party, when it comes to uh, support for Israel, they're very similar. However, there was a time, and not a long time ago, that things were different. So given the controversies generated by just naming Jeremy Corbyn, could you summarize for us what happened during the East tenureship as leader of a Labour Party?
0: Yeah, I'm always some, somewhat reluctant to talk about this because it can be such a toxic and, and polarizing question. I think a lot of what is said about this uh, is quite unhelpful. Um, certainly, it's not true to start off with um, that Labour is somehow an anti-racist party. You know, I mentioned um, the history People like Sydney Webb uh, being explicitly racist and anti-Semitic. More recently, you know, or not that recently, but subsequently, you know, Clement Attlee's uh, Labour government um, actually interned Holocaust survivors in um, in Attlee and other places detention camp camp in in Cyprus. Not to mention that the party's contemporary support for detention centres and other racist practices of the British state. You know, so. So while it's not true, I don't think that Corbyn was some kind of rabid anti-Semite, it's also not true that the left is uh, immune or that the anti-Semitism in Labour was all a smear. So we could look recently at Diane Abbotts, um, a big Corbin allies, very clumsy intervention on this on this topic, of which she for which she's she's rightly apologized. But interventions by people like Ken Livingstone, the former London mayor, and others are really, frankly, just unhelpful. Um, so my position is that, you know, anti-Semitism was and is a real issue, but it is also an issue that was certainly uh, weaponized um, by some, some very right-wing uh, support, support actors supportive of Israel, including groups like the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism and the Israel Advocacy Movement, who have no real anti-racist credentials to speak of, um, and pro-Israel elements within the party, such as the Jewish Labour Movement, which is the um, descendant of the uh, power at um, But at the same time, I don't think we should overstate the role of the Zionist movement or the Zionist movement's power. So like the issue of anti-Semitism, I think, was weaponized by a very broad coalition of people who, who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, Not just because of his support for Palestinian rights, but because he wanted to redistribute wealth in this country and he wanted to oppose uh, neoliberalism. So the very cynical uh, weaponization of anti-Semitism as a political football, which does a lot of damage to the cause of anti-racist politics. And I think that says a lot about the toxic state of of racial politics in Britain today, you know, a wide coalition celebrated Corbyn's failure in the 2019 election. But pro-Israel actors' main victory was um, the adoption of the IHRA, which we've we've mentioned. And I think if you place the IHRA in the way it denies the Nakba essentially and denies the reality of Israeli apartheid and how that gaslights Palestinians in the context of um, a report in Britain called the Sewell report um, which essentially gaslighted all communities of color in Britain by denying the reality of institutional racism. Then you can see that this you know this actually fits with Britain's um, really really dire anti-racist political debate right now. and as I've said already, I think it's a you know very was a very sad episode for the cause of anti-racism in this country.
1: I want to move forward and ask about uh, a particular case study. Uh, which got all of my attention, uh, even because I know this place personally, the Tricycle Theater. And in the book, it becomes a sort of a quintessential example of how pro-Israel uh, groups work and uh, Israeli pressure works In you know when certain decisions are made that uh, may taint the image of Israel. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Tricycle uh, Theater saga?
0: Yeah, so um, we've already talked about what brand Israel was and how it sought to promote Israel's image by promoting kind of cultural outputs. And um, I mentioned that the BDS campaign has a a cultural boycott element. So that's the essential conflict that the Tricycle Theatre episode speaks to. So the Tricycle is a North London theatre. It's actually today known as the Kiln Theatre. And I would venture to speculate that it's rebranded didn't come immediately after this tri- this this kind of episode I'm gonna describe, but it came sometime after, but I would venture to speculate it was very much connected to wanting to have a kind of clean slate in the public image in terms of you know, what it's known for. So what happens is the Tricycle Theatre has for some years been hosting a, a film festival called the UK Jewish Film Festival. And that film festival has a small amount of uh, M- uh, sponsorship from the Israeli embassy in London. And it shows films not only about Jewish life, but also about Israel. And the organisers of the of the film festival make statements which make clear that they see that as an intrinsic part of um, having a Jewish festival is to have films about Israel. So they're essentially expressing Zionist political positions. Now in 2013, a small number of anti-Zionist Jews protest outside the UK Jewish Film Festival because of its Israeli embassy sponsorship. And they say that this makes it part of Brand Israel, this attempt to whitewash Israeli apartheid. But not not much happens until the following summer in 2014, when Israel is bombing Gaza uh, for, I think, think 51 days under Israel Operation Protective Edge. And it kills over 2,000 people, including around 500 children during that summer. Now, during this while this massacre is going on, the Tri School Theatres board democratically decide to request that the UK Jewish Film Festival removes the Israeli Embassy's sponsorship, um, and they offered to reimburse the money, which is a very small amount. I think it's one thousand four hundred pounds that um, the Embassy gives to the film festival. They say we'll we'll, we'll make up that money. We want to make sure that the film festival can go ahead, and they say this isn't a boycott. We just want to be neutral. However. The narrative that is reflected then in the press when it immediately blows up is that Jewish films are being banned and that the theatre is boycotting um, this um, film festival. And that narrative, I don't think, was accidental. So there's a office involved in um, generating media and its previous clients include um, key actors within the Zionist movement, including the Jewish National Fund UK, which I mentioned, and Aisha UK. And its CEO... Of this pr company also uh, has praised brand israel explicitly in the press um also a group called campaign against anti-semitism which i mentioned is a deeply right-wing organization with very little uh, actual anti-racist credentials actually makes very inflammatory comparisons to the nazi era and says that um, the tri-school theater is boycotting this film festival and that is the same as um, when jewish shops were boycotted by nazis and at the same time as a result of this um, very inflammatory language and and inaccurate language um, you get um, some um, philanthropists who fund the theatre withdrawing their support so people like Trevor Chin and Celia Atkin um, say they're no longer going to donate to the theatre and you actually have Conservative MPs writing to the Arts Council England saying that they should defund the theatre but the Arts Council declines to do that and it says you know we have to remain in the, the art institutions should be independent right we can't have government interference um however someone else doesn't really agree with the, the fact that arts institutions should be independent and um i discovered through documents that i obtained through freedom of information requests what i think was the decisive intervention in this affair which is that a man called sajid javid who was at the time uh, the minister for culture Uh, Minister for Culture, Media and Sports and is today uh, still a Conservative MP. He requests to meet with the theatre director, uh, Indu Rubasingham, and um, we don't know exactly what happened in that meeting, but uh, interviews from across the political spectrum, so pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian that I did, along with Sajid Javid's own statement subsequent to this affair, suggest strongly that what he said in that meeting to the theatre director was um, you know, you're going to lose your funding. The theatre going to lose its funding, and potentially some sources suggest that he said, "You know, you will lose your job if you go ahead with this." And this, you know, essentially bullying behaviour. Surprise, surprise! It works. And nine days after the initial decision, or the initial request to um, for the for the film festival to uh, remove the Israeli embassy's logo, the theatre reverses its decision and says okay fine just we'll go back to normal however in in a sense in effect to sort of humiliate the the theater uk jewish film festival is held elsewhere anyway and um israeli ambassador at the time daniel Taub, writes to sajid javid and thanks him for his um quiet and effective intervention and daniel Taub was closely involved in that affair as well and so there's several interesting points that this episode illuminates you know firstly um, I discovered that the Board of Deputies and the Jewish Leadership Council, which is another pro-Israel um, Jewish communal group, they didn't actually know that Sajid Javid had already intervened because they write to him after he's already intervened saying, we want you to intervene. And so it suggests that actually sometimes pro-Israel civil society groups are not actually quite relevant and not in a, and that the state actors are much more critical. I think Daniel Tao, the Israeli ambassador's role, Suggest that the festival is perhaps part of Brandy Israel. Well. Um, and, and interestingly, Daniel Taub's letter to Sajid Javid, thanking him for his intervention, doesn't mention anti-Semitism at all, despite the way the affair was represented in the press. He talks much more accurately about um, you know, the need what he sees as the need to resist boycotts of Israeli culture. And um finally, I suppose the key point is that. If this was indeed a Brand Israel initiative that attempted to sort of manufacture consent through soft power, then it definitely failed because you see um, the need to resort to top-down bullying and coercion. And I would say that the outcome of that affair is a little ambiguous. It's unclear, although in the immediate term it was sort of a victory for pro-Israel actors. In the long term, it's unclear if that bullying tactic is going to be sustainable and actually, if it may, might not even generate um, a sort of response. So it became a core celebre this episode for both pro-Israel and pro-Palestine actors. But on the pro-Palestine side, you get artists Palestine UK founded. In the wake of that episode, you get a big cultural boycott pledge from hundreds of um, British culture producers issued the next year. So it was a really interesting episode and is kind of emblematic of uh, what often happens when the BDS movement and the pro-Israel movement clash in Britain.
1: And it's quite clear that uh, uh, silence and criticism through politics, propaganda, and cases similar to the uh, tricycle theater, uh, you know, these are very visible. But there's another aspect that you talk about in the book, one of the various tactics, that is uh, legal warfare. And I was wondering if you can tell us more about how Israel started this uh, idea of using the law in order to outlaw the BDS movement?
0: Yeah, of course. So lawfare has its roots in the erosion of international law uh, that we see during the war on terror, predominantly in the, or by the the US government. And there's there's two fronts to sort of pro-Israel lawfare. Um, The first front is really this attempt to kind of prosecute, litigate against BDS and prosecute BDS actors. And the second front is the attempt to to outlaw it. And both, of course, you know, move the struggle over uh, BDS to more favourable turfs for pro-Israel actors. So whether that's the court of law, courts of law, or state legislatures, where it's quite easy easy for pro-Israel actors to win support, they're definitely both of them more favourable terrain than civil society and the court of, Public opinion, where it's very hard for Israel pro-Israel actors to win win the argument. So, in terms of the first attempt in uh, attempts to uh, the first front and uh, with litigation against BDS, um, one of the the kind of antecedents of this is again the war on terror and um, the attempt to kind of quote unquote bankrupt terror, which is a, a war waged by. Uh, a pro Israel law, uh, an Israeli law firm called Shurat Hadin. And um, they soon moved from, you know, bringing cases um, against people they view as sort of involved in terrorism to uh, attacking BDS activists, p- people engaged in nonviolent BDS activism, right? And you see uh, Shurat Hadin managed to shut down the bank accounts of pro Palestinian and BDS. Groups to shut down fundraising platforms, and an important thing to say about this this front of lawfare is that um, state private networks are very marked trait. So um, that's not my words. That's a legal scholar Audrey Kittry points out that public private partnerships are really typical here, and and the, the the benefit of that is that it provides the kind of flexibility and the deniability of a civil society actor or a private actor, such as Shuret Hadin, with the resources of um, a a kind of government actor. And it transfers risk away from uh, a government actor, so that if a legal case fails, and there's a real deniability there when the the kind of case has been outsourced to a third party. Um, In Britain, we see groups like UK Lawyers for Israel, uh, also emerge from networks very close to the ministry of Israeli ministry of foreign affairs and and UKlfi engages in a range of lawfare attacks against charities um, universities a whole range of institutions in britain another key lawfare actor here is jewish human rights watch a group calling itself that which brought cases against um uh three british councils who adopted elements of Um, the BDS movement. And we know that the embassy has been involved in other cases involving um, Mishkondorea, which is an elite uh, corporate law firm here. And so it's it's possible that the Israeli embassy at least tacitly uh, approved the other kind of cases I mentioned. And and an important point to make is that even when those cases fail, um, they still can exert a chilling effect on BDS activism. But as I said, that, you know, the, the, the didn't, they didn't work per se, and they didn't necessarily win those cases. And that's why the second front of law has emerged, so the effort to outlaw BDS. Um, and this really starts to take off in, in early 2016. Within about 18 months, you see 20 different American, North American states passing BDS, anti-BDS uh, legislation. And that's risen to over 30, I believe now, U.S. states. Um, And that legislation is actually now being used as a model for other repressive causes, such as to prevent boycotts of the oil industry, which I think is a really important point. Now, um, in Britain, the government has been promising for years, since around 2015, to uh, outlaw BDS. But for a long time, it only took minor steps towards tweaking sort of procurement policies or pension regulations. However, just recently, in the last couple of weeks, uh, the Financial Times here has reported that it is about to table primary legislation, and that's in keeping with a broader authoritarian agenda of the British government here. So we've had the uh, Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act and the Public Order Act, very, very anti-authoritarian and anti-protest uh, piece of legislation, go through recently. And again, it, it echoes, you know, the attack that Margaret Thatcher's government made on local councils, which sought to boycott. South Africa, and we're we're going to see a fight on our hands. So here in Britain, there's a coalition of civil society groups called the Right to Boycott, um, which is supported by, you know, anti-arms trade campaigners, anti-fossil fuels campaigners from the climate movement, not only Palestine solidarity groups, but all coming together to say that councils should have a right to boycott, but this lawfare confrontation is going to be quite a fight on
1: their hands. You mentioned universities, and chapter seven is dedicated to British academia. Now, I was at SOAS in the early 2000s, and I witnessed uh, firsthand the rise of uh, Israeli activism in British universities. Can you talk about uh, the attempt made by various organizations to change the ways in which Israel is perceived in academia? And also, If you can talk about the question of the establishment of Israel studies departments.
0: Again, not unlike the cultural arena, in academia, there is an attempt to sort of positively promote Israel's image at first, um, but when that fails, we we just see more oppressive um, tactics coming out of the bag instead. But that initial attempt comes in the form of um, the promotion of Israel studies um, by exclusively private donors um and in in britain certainly exclusively foundations with links to pro-israel advocacy um, and some of the people at the helms of those foundations such as the late um george weidenfeld were very explicit about their political aims in promoting uh, the subject of israel studies and saying it is vital to the fight against anti-zionism and saying that they wanted to especially target institutions such as SOAS, where we were both uh, at university, and Sussex University and Manchester University, which are known for uh, left-wing generally politics and and pro-Palestine movements. And it's important to say that that doesn't mean that every scholar who might be uh, in an Israel Studies post or every student studying an Israel Studies course is um, propagating or receiving uh, pure propaganda. I'm not arguing that at all. But what I am saying is that we can't separate the rise of this subject from the political agenda of the donors who are privately funding it. And we we have to acknowledge that um, the rise of this subject um, through private donations is certainly making certain ideas more employable, more accessible, and as a corollary, I think marginalising other ideas. And, you know, sometimes there is actually active influence attempts. So we know, and I talk about in my book, Um, again a document I acquired through Freedom of Information request that shows that George Weidenfeld wrote to then Vice Chancellor of Sussex Michael Farthing explicitly suggesting some names for the uh, Israel Studies um, role that he he was um, and other pro-Israel donors were funding and we don't know for sure if the candidate who got the job um, was one of the names he suggested but it's, it's quite problematic right and this stuff speaks to you know, the status of universities under neoliberalism and the extent to which they are beholden to private funders. Uh, I talk also about a scheme called Birax, which is facilitated by the British Council, and and um, it essentially creates partnerships between British and Israeli universities for scientific research into um, regenerative medicine, which, of course, is in no bad thing in itself. But I show that that scheme was, again, explicitly conceived of and understood as um, by both the British Council and the private donors behind it as a response to BDS and a way to undermine the BDS movement. As I said, again, despite these attempts, uh, establishing Israel studies courses and establishing um, BRX programs, they're still failing to turn the tide of declining support for Israel and rising support for Palestinians because Israeli apartheid is, is ongoing. And so actually what we've seen in recent years is more censorship both through use of the IHRA and um also here in Britain we have something called the Prevent policy which is a piece of uh, which is a kind of arm of counterterrorism legislation aimed specifically at kind of extremism quote unquote extremism um and essentially institutionalizes surveillance particularly of muslim communities in various public institutions and what we see um in from around 2018 certainly is um, events being shut down, events that are kind of marking Israeli Apartheid week, um, especially where students involved are Muslims or people of colour, and then being sort of branded as quote-unquote extremists. And we also see scholarship increasingly policed and increasingly shut down. So, for example, a scholar called Somdeep Sen, who's the author of a book called Decolonizing Palestine, is asked by Glasgow University to provide in advance a text of the speech he's going to give, and he declines to do that because it's a an academic freedom of issue issue but of course the sort of free speech brigade are nowhere to be heard on this issue and just more broadly i suppose like in, in, universities have always been incubators of social change and they've always been spaces where radical ideas can flourish so it's not unique to the zionist movement there's attempt to shape academic environments so i draw a parallel with um the u.s foundations during the cold war so the the Ford Foundation, Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations did um, not dissimilar um, uh, kind of initiatives with both domestic universities and universities overseas as an attempt to sort of support U.S. hegemony.
1: I want to move to the last chapter of of your book, which is dedicated to the uh, media. And perhaps I'm just gonna mention this uh, infamous mantra, don't mention the dead kid.
0: Yeah, so uh, don't mention the dead kid. is what um, journalist uh, Sam Kiley said he was told by um, his editors when he worked at the Times newspaper. And he was reporting on a unit of the Israeli army which killed a 12-year-old Palestinian boy called Mohammed al-Dora, whose murder became a real symbol of the Second Intifada. And, you know, Sam Kiley is a journalist with some uh, spine and some moral conscience, and he's outraged by this. And in 2001, he quits his job and he exposes what happens and and what he was told in a a different newspaper. And the Times is, of course, um, one part of Rupert Murdoch's media empire. And Murdoch is known as a supporter of Israel. He was friends with the, the late Israeli Prime Minister, President Ariel Sharon, and Murdoch has business interests in Israel. Now, he may not have directly intervened in this case, but that's not usually, of course, how power it works. It's usually more subtle, and um, media owners, you know, simply create a culture where their executives know the boundaries of what is permissible. And he's also said to have, you know, created a culture where, you um, criticism of China was was not really permissible for for his own personal reasons. So it's not unique to Israel, and it's also not unique to The Times. So I mentioned uh, another right-wing broadsheet here in Britain, The Telegraph, whose former editor, Conrad Black, was also extremely pro-Israel and was also accused by his own journalists of creating a culture in which criticism of Israel was not allowed. Um, And again, that's not unique to Israel. So uh, a famous British journalist called Peter Oborn, quits the Telegraph uh, more recently um, because arguing that um, the paper has suppressed criticism of the banking giant HSBC because of lucrative um, advertising contracts that it has with the bank. So, you know, all that is to say that um, ownership is a critical issue in the media, and it's not just about the pro Israel lobby, but also about the political positions of the proprietors of various um, press outlets. Um, And, you know, if we look at um, the Jewish Chronicle, which is arguably the most today, the most consistently pro Israel newspaper in Britain, historically, at the turn of the 20th century is actually editorially uh, anti Zionist to the extent that the um, Zionist Federation and the Jewish agency actually seek at one point to buy a major stake in the newspaper to alter that that kind of situation. Um, And as I said, today, today the the JC is very pro-Israel. Conversely, the Guardian newspaper, the leading kind of left liberal daily here in Britain, has a sort of reverse historical trajectory. So if we go back in time, it's a very pro-Zionist in its early incarnations under owner and editor C.P. Scott. Um, And he actually introduces Chaim Wiseman to um, then-British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, um, now, today, The Guardian has a much more strained relationship with Israel, but it still provides a platform for um, people like Jonathan Friedland, who's a um, leading liberal Zionist, to sort of to argue that Israel can and should morally justify the Nakba. I think another point to say is that there had just never been uh, a British media outlet owned by someone with comparable pro-Palestinian sympathies. So that's the press. Um know, And in large part, the press agenda really dictates the BBC, uh, which, of course, has huge influence, not just in Britain, but around the world. So most people get their news from watching television. Um, And the BBC has, firstly, never been meaningfully independent from the British state, and secondly, has a strong tendency to um, defer to power in its reporting, not just on on issues like israel-palestine but on on everything so from industrial disputes to other other concerns so um so while you know both pro-palestinian and pro-israel sort of actors can quote isolated incidents where you know they claim bias and this is a you know a lot of ink is spilled on this issue the existing systematic studies that we have from uh, glasgow university loughborough university the lse and indeed the bbc's own report from uh, the thomas report all suggest a pro-israel slant to the reporting that the bbc has so the thomas report which is com- commissioned by the bbc says and i quote that the bbc's concern with balance gives an impression of balance between the two sides which was fundamentally if unintentionally misleading and that comes across in a number of ways whether it's the talk time given to each side the headlines that are used the newsworthiness of casualties and deaths on the respective sides um, the language that is used the amount of time that's dedicated to providing historical context and and perhaps the most egregious example of anti-palestinian bias of bbc is the 2009 refusal of the bbc to air the um, disaster emergency committee's humanitarian appeal for funds to go to the people of gaza after they have been um, bombed and the infrastructure in gaza strip destroyed um, in um, over the new year period in 2008-9 under what israel called uh, operation cast lead and i open the chapter with that because it's such a stark example of pro israel bias um, but to be clear i'm not arguing that this all happens because of the israel lobby like some individual journalists are indeed ideologically sympathetic to israel and i, I mentioned some uh, some examples in the book of people with with ties to the pro-israel movement john ware jane corbyn both produced uh, important panorama panorama um programs um but we've also got to contend with just the deep-seated racism in in all media outlets in britain and with the commercial pressures that are in play with you know including with um sort of public broadcasters like the bbc that said The government of Israel and its allies certainly do attempt to influence the media. Um, Again, they're not unique in this regard. So I mentioned in the book an example of um, a protest that uh, targeted Channel 4 after it screened a documentary called Sri Lanka's Killing Fields that um, uh, Channel 4's head of news said she believed was organized by the Sri Lankan Ministry of Defense um so you know yeah israel is not unique but um it certainly is quite active and it, i broadly separate the tactics that pro-israel actors use into carrot strategies and stick strategies right so the latter are sort of negative punitive strategies such as flack and i quote the example of a group called just journalism but they're not actually very effective in britain and the more effective strategy are the carrot strategies right so seeking to build positive reciprocal relationships with Journalists and the, the key actor in Britain is a body called Bicom, which recruits sort of ex-journalists and um, professional PR operatives to to um, to do its work. And it takes gen- journalists on regular trips to Israel, and 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 through this maintains a network of friendly contacts that um, it can call on when episodes of um, intense Israeli state violence occur, and it's sending out. Daily, daily updates to these journalists, and it can provide them with, you know, talking heads and seek to place um, stories that express the Israeli government's um, slant on matters um, through that work and through those networks.
1: I was just uh, reminded that uh, um, there's a new book published by uh, Shireen Tadros, who, by the way, she was at SOAS, too, in fact. Um, and she was a former reporter for Sky News. Now she works for Amnesty International. And the book, if I remember well, is actually called Take Inside. And and I remember that when she was reporting from the Middle East, actually Sky News uh, had this very interesting, kind of a like diverse view uh, from the region. And she was able to portray a, you know, what was happening on the ground from a different perspective and also use a different kind of narrative. But then she left and I wonder whether she left because of a pressure or personal choices, but I'm very curious now to uh, uh, delve into her book about taking sides and whether maybe some of this may be answered. Um, I have one last question really, and uh, it's about the conclusion. So reading your book, one can see that uh, uh, the BDS and Palestinian activism, Are certainly becoming stronger, but no way near uh, close to challenge Israeli propaganda and the Israeli propaganda machine at large. So, could you take us through uh, your conclusion?
0: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I found the conclusion hard. It's so hard to write about uh, such a living topic um, in any definitive way. Um, But what we can say for sure is that there has been and is a big wave of repression against Palestine solidarity in the BDS movement um that has to some extent succeeded in you know demobilizing elements of the movement repressing it um um and uh, exacting a sort of price tag to use a, a phrase that pro-israel actors borrow from the settler movement um, for palestine solidarity but that at the same time you know i think in the long term there is cause for hope um i think it's a sort of uh it's a marathon and not a sprint this struggle and um I think that like there's some there's some criticism of the Palestinian solidarity movement in my conclusion, because I, I think elements of it are not um, wedded to a collective liberation politics, which I would like to see, and I believe is vital, not just sort of politically, but uh, strategically. So Hassan Kanafani says that, you know, the Palestinian cause is a cause not just for Palestinians, but for everyone opposed to injustice and, and the Palestinian struggle, You know, it clearly is the Palestinian Liberation Movement, but it also transcends um, Palestine, I think, in that it's emblematic of a range of wider struggles against borders, racial violence, refugee rights, um, you know, housing struggles, and ties to so many other struggles of indigenous people's movements. So, you know, I want to see uh, the Palestine Solidarity Movement continue to build a broad progressive coalition. I think it is doing that, and it needs to do that to resist repression. Um and also, you know, I, I strongly emphasize that like the struggle against anti-Semitism and the struggle against Israeli apartheid are one and the same struggle against, you know, racism. In terms of, you know, the kind of empirical conclusions, that I think that you can see that pro-Israel actors really thrive and flourish in anti-democratic environments. So they can influence uh or they have, you know, for a long time, you know, been able to sort of um count on um foreign policy in this country being pro-israel because it's not it's not really very influenced by democracy the same thing with our media institutions and with university management arenas um they are susceptible to pro-israel influence and it's only in more democratic spaces such as um cultural arenas campus debates that you see um bds initiatives emerging and so that turns to civil society that bds makes i think relies on Deepening democracy here in Britain, and in order to make um, public opinion actually count in foreign policy, so that the wider struggle I, I see is between, you know, authoritarian states around the world, which are seeking to repress, you know, their own citizens who stand in solidarity with the oppressed Palestinian people, and are seeking to shrink the space for civil society. And those those movements, um and I think I really like the Martin Luther King quotes about you know how the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice ultimately. So and I also think hope is a is a discipline and a political practice that we have to um that we have to
1: maintain. This was Gil A key, author of Friends of Israel: The Backlash Against Palestine Solidarity, published by Verso in 2023. Gil, thank you so much.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.